The Old Testament reading uh, today is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. The New Testament reading will be Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Genesis 1, 26 through 31 and Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Before we read God's word, can I just simply exhort you, brothers and sisters, to give full attention to both the reading of God's word and to the preaching of it. I know it can be difficult at times for various reasons to focus uh, in on the sermon, but how important it is uh, that we do focus in on God's Word. Uh, This is something we do but once a week. It takes only 45 minutes or so, uh, but I would encourage you to do everything in your power to give attention to God's most holy Word at this time. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now let us go to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which is very familiar to you, I would assume. And Jesus came and said to them, that is to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning. There are three questions of supreme importance to man. First of all, who is God? Secondly, what is man? And thirdly, what does God require of man? And notice that the Bible begins to answer these three questions in its opening chapter. There God is first introduced to us, and then man whom he created in his image, and then God's purpose for man is set forth. It is not hard to see that the answer we give to these three questions, who is God, what is man, And what does God require of man will impact greatly the trajectory of our lives, even to this present day. Uh, The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and they are therefore corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Why is it that they live in this way? Because they have begun by saying, there is no God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, Proverbs 9.10. What do we learn in the opening chapter of Holy Scripture, except, among other things, that God is? 
He is supreme. He is the creator of all things seen and unseen, including man. We also learn that man was unique in all of God's creation, being made in the image of God. And as we will see today, man being made in the image of God was given the unique responsibility of exercising dominion over the world that God had made. And so here is the principle that I wish to drive home today. God created man in his image and after his likeness so that man would fill the earth with his offspring and exercise dominion over the created world. God made man to image him on the earth. God has authority over heaven and earth and man made in the image of God was given authority upon the earth. He was to imitate God as one who had dominion. But it is clear that man's authority was never absolute as God's is. Instead, man's authority was from the beginning derived from God. Man was given authority, but he was to go on living in constant subjection to and in service of the God who made him. Man was created to be a king, but as king, he was to forever serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Put slightly differently, man was created in the image and likeness of God and was given dominion, not so that he might promote the advancement of his own kingdom, but so that he might further the kingdom of God on earth. This was true from the beginning. Adam and Eve, having been made in God's image, were to work towards the establishment and expansion of a culture on earth where all of their offspring would worship and serve their creator just as they were created to do. My brothers and sisters, in the previous sermon, I attempted to give an answer to the question, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God? And as I preached that sermon, you probably noticed that not all of the answers that I gave came straight from Genesis 1, but were from all of Scripture. It was more of a topical sermon, a theological sermon, answering the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Today, I wish to walk through the text of Genesis 1, 26-31 with you more methodically to show that man was made in the image of God so that he might fill the earth and have dominion over it, all to the glory of God, the creator of all things seen and unseen. Notice, first of all, the words, let us, at the beginning of verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Uh, the question that we must ask is, who was God speaking to when he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness? The use of the plural, us, and our is striking, and it is meant to be striking. It grabs the attention of the reader and causes the reader to say, who is God speaking to? Uh, we have heard God speak throughout the creation week here in Genesis 1. Uh, God so far has made declarations, though, and we have not encountered any sort of deliberation taking place between God and someone else. And God said, for example, let there be light and there was light, Genesis 1.3. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, Genesis 1.6. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, Genesis 1.9, etc., etc. We can uh, list other examples where God speaks, but these are all declarations of God. God spoke and the heavens and earth came into existence. God formed 
the earth by the word of his power. But here, in Genesis 1.26, we encounter not a simple declaration from God when he comes to create man, but God engaged in deliberation. God engaged in conversation. In verse 26, God is heard speaking to someone as if he were making a proposal concerning the creation of man. When God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, it is made very plain and clear that when man is made, he will be made not by a singular person, but by a plurality of persons. He is going to be made by the us and the our of verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, God said. And so we must ask, who is God speaking to? Some very good men have claimed that God is here speaking to the angels, that is, to the heavenly council, when he says, let us make man in our image. Indeed, God did create the heavenly realm and the angels who fill that heavenly realm prior to the creation of the earthly realm. And so they were there to witness the creation of the earth and also the creation of man. Genesis 1.1 makes this very clear. Also, Job 38 makes this clear that the angels witnessed the creation of the world and also the creation of man. But according to this view, God is counseling and deliberating with the angels when he says, let us, in Genesis 1.26. And if this view were taken, then we would have to say that man will eventually be made in the image of God and of angels. For when man is made, he is indeed made in the image of the persons, referred to by the pronouns us and our in verse 26. Uh, Though possible, I do not believe that this view holds up to close scrutiny. And I will not take the time to argue against this view extensively here. But a simple and brief argument can be made by saying two things. First of all, nowhere in Scripture is man said to be made in the image of angels, but only in the image of God. And two, in verse 27, it is explicitly stated that man was made in the image of God. There we read, So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The plural pronouns, us and our, in verse 26, are indeed striking, and they are meant to be striking. They grab the attention of the reader and cause us to ask, who is God speaking to? And if God were speaking to the angels, to the heavenly council, so-called, verse 27 would be the place to answer this question, saying that man was made in the image of God and angels. But instead, verse 27 is emphatic that man was made in the image of God, period. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. So who then is God speaking to, if not to the angels or to this heavenly council? And the answer, though mysterious and difficult for our minds to comprehend, is that God was speaking to himself, Man was created in the image of God. More specifically, man was created in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that we find a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity here in Genesis 1. Uh, The rest of the scriptures, and in particular the New Testament, develop the doctrine of the Trinity. But certainly the Trinity is evident here in Genesis 1. We can see the triune God here active in uh, creation What subsequent scripture texts say directly 
match perfectly with the creation narrative of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God the Father created through God the Word or Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, who in the beginning created the heavens and earth, is triune. He is one God, eternally existing in three subsistences or persons, Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Nowhere is this more clear in Genesis 1 than when it comes to the creation of man, for it is here that God deliberated and counseled within himself. The counsel, therefore, is not the heavenly counsel, that is the angels with God, but it is the divine counsel, that is the triune God taking counsel within himself, Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image, and in the image of God, man was made. A further question that we might ask concerning the let us of verse 26 is, why did God need to deliberate prior to the creation of man? Why, the, why this? Why the need for it here? When God created all other things, there was no deliberation at all. There was no let us create light or let us create the oceans or any such thing, but only, and God said, But why the need for deliberation when it came to the creation of man? And the answer, of course, is that God did not need to go through a process of deliberation in order to create man, but that he deliberated so that he might reveal truth to us, truth concerning himself, truth concerning man and his purposes for us. So just as God did not need to take six days to create the earth, so too he did not need to deliberate before creating man. But God took six days to create the earth, so as to reveal truth to us, and also God deliberated within himself, saying, let us make man in our own image, in order to reveal truth to us. And what truth is revealed to us, except something of the nature of God, the one true God, who created the heavens and the earth, is plural. He is triune, one God existing eternally in three persons. And something about man images that. There is something about man, the way man was made, that images the plurality that we see within the Godhead. Calvin puts it this way in his commentary on Genesis. He says, Hitherto God has been introduced simply as commanding. Now when he approaches the most excellent of all his works, namely man... He enters into consultation. God certainly might hear command by his bare word that he wished to be done, but he chose to give this tribute to the excellency of man that he would in a manner enter into consultation concerning his creation. This is the highest honor with which he has dignified us to a due regard for which Moses by this mode of speaking would excite our minds. For God is not now first beginning to consider what form he will give to man and with what endowments it would be fitting to adorn him, nor is he pausing as over a work of difficulty. It's not that God is having a hard time. It's not that God is now confused saying, what shall we do? But just as we have before observed that the creation of the world was distributed over six days for our sake, to the end that our minds might the more easily be retained in the meditation of God's work. So now, for the purpose of commanding to our attention the dignity of our nature, he, in taking counsel concerning the creation of man, testifies that he is about to undertake something great and wonderful. That is John Calvin in his commentary on the first book of Moses called Genesis, page 91 and 92. Let us make man 
in our own image, God says. Secondly, let us consider the word man in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. As this text develops, it will become clear that when God said, let us make man in our image, he meant, let us make mankind in our image, and not, let us make the male humans in our image only. The word man, as you know, can be used to refer either to male humans in particular, or to humankind more generally. The same is true in the Hebrew language as it is in the English language. The word translated man, which is Adam, or Adam, in Hebrew, can be used to refer to a male or to any human being or generically to the human race. Uh, So the word Adam, Adam, in Hebrew, has a variety of uses just as it does in the English language. Um, Man here uh, is to be understood as a reference to human beings, male and female. Look with me at verse 27 again, where we read, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. And then what does the text say? Male and female, he created them. And so in the beginning, God created a male, Adam, human, and also he created a female, Adam, Adam, human. Man is made in the image of God, and that means that both men and women are made In the image of God, they are image bearers of God. And I think it is important to recognize that both men and women were created in the image of God from the beginning. In Genesis 2, we will encounter a more up-close and personal account of the creation of man. It's very interesting to see the similarities and the differences between Genesis 1 and 2. They are not two competing creation stories, but rather Genesis 1 gives us a broad perspective on the creation of the earthly realm. It all comes to focus upon the creation of man made in the image of God. But in Genesis 2, everything is up close and personal concerning the formation of the man and the woman and the covenant that God did enter into with them at the beginning. So in Genesis 2, we will encounter a more up close and personal account of the creation of man. And there we will see that Adam, that is the male human, was formed by God first from the dust of the ground. And then Eve, the female human, was formed by God from Adam's side. Uh, This order is very important and it should not be ignored. In fact, Christ and his apostles make reference to the order of the creation of man and woman Uh, as recorded in Genesis 2, when speaking to the role of men and women, husbands and wives, in the family and in the church, much is made of the order of creation, as recorded in Genesis 2. The differences and uniqueness of men and women should never be minimized or ignored. But neither should we ignore what the two share in common, male and female. Men and women are both made in the image of God. They are both image bearers, equally so. And similarly, men and women are equal in Christ. The New Testament says that they are co-heirs and therefore stand on equal footing before God in Christ Jesus. And this is why Peter warns husbands, saying, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So do you see both principles contained within this one verse in 1 Peter 3, 7? 
where Peter, on the one hand, is saying there is a difference between the man and the woman, and he here calls the woman the weaker vessel, and in other places he attributes headship to to the man. But on the other hand, he is saying they are co-heirs with you. They are heirs with you in Christ, and they stand on equal footing. So do not dare use the authority that God has given you to abuse the woman. Instead, live with her in an understanding way. Instead, show honor to her. She is a co-heir in Christ. And if you do not, God will judge you, and your prayers will be hindered. Men and women are therefore the same in some very important ways. They are both human. They are both made in the image of God. They are both heirs of the grace of life found in Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 So Paul is not here denying the uniqueness of men and women. He is not denying the specific roles that they are to take in the church and in the home. Were he doing this, he would be contradicting what he says so plainly in other places, namely Ephesians 5, where the role of husband and wife is fleshed out by Paul, uh, that they are to take in the home. Instead, in Galatians 3.28, Paul is emphasizing what males and females share in common. There is no male and female, for they are all one in Christ Jesus. They are both human beings, made in the image of God, fallen, but then redeemed in Christ Jesus, who is the image of God, having been made flesh, the image of God has been restored in them. I think it is amazing how difficult it is for us to get this right. It seems that throughout the history of the world, and even in our culture today, men will tend to emphasize either the differences between men and women, or their essential union or oneness. And so how common it has been for men to domineer women, to abuse their God-given power and authority within the church and home, and thus do violence to women made in the image of God and co-heirs in Christ. This has happened throughout the history of the world. This is happening in places today. But the opposite error, I fear, is being made in our day when oneness or sameness of the male and female is being emphasized to the neglect of the particular roles assigned to them by God at creation to be fulfilled within the church and family until the Lord returns. Indeed, our sinful natures do fight against the Word of God at every turn, don't they? So that if we get it wrong in this way and then correct, we overcorrect, and we get it wrong in this way. But brothers and sisters, we must take the Word of God in its entirety and see that on the one hand, men and women are essentially the same. They are both human image bearers of God, and if in Christ they are co-heirs together. But on the other hand, we must say that there are differences, very important differences between men and women. God designed them differently so that they might play different roles within the home and within the church. Uh, Truth be told, things are even far more perverse in our culture today. Not only are the God-given roles of men and women being ignored, but even the fundamental distinction between male and female is in our day being denied. And I do pray that the Lord would have mercy on us. It should be noted that man was not divided by God into species as the plant and animal kingdoms were, but only by gender. The animals and plants were created by God according to their kinds. Did you notice that? But there are no kinds within the human species. There is only male 
and female, and they are both fully human image bearers of God. And so it should be plain to all that the scriptures leave no room at all for racism. Uh, That is, hatred or prejudice against people on the account of race alone. Indeed, in the beginning God made two human beings, one male and one female, and from them the whole human race did descend. It should also be noted that the unity and diversity that exists within God is reflected by the unity and diversity that exists within creation and supremely within man. Did you notice that God created trees? And yet there are many kinds of trees, and we have this capability of identifying a tree as a tree, oneness, and yet seeing that there are different kinds of trees. They look very different from one another, and yet we're able to say that this one is a tree and this one is a tree, though they are different. Uh, One can see the same thing in, in every realm created by God. God created birds, and yet there are many kinds of birds. And God ultimately created man... But when he created man, he created man with plurality, with diversity. He created man, humankind, male and female. And so what I am saying is the let us make man in our image, the plurality that we see within the Godhead, as stated in Genesis 1.26, is reflected in the world that God made. So that God eventually does make man something that is unified, something that is one, humankind, one thing. But when he made humankind, one thing, he made it with plurality in it, male and female. This is a reflection of the triune God, who though one is plural, Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. I might ask our children, saying, are there more gods than one? And what answer should they give? There is but one only, the living and true God. And then I might ask them another question. Maybe you've heard this question before. I don't know. How many persons are there in the Godhead? And if they were on point and ready, they would say, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. And do you see that we might say a similar thing about man? There is man. There is humankind. There is humanity. There is one thing, and yet there is plurality within it, which is a reflection of the triune God. Each individual human is an image bearer of God. This is true. But it is also true that humanity in its entirety, consisting of males and females, does collectively image the triune God. Thirdly, let us say a brief word about the phrase, in our image, after our likeness found in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Some think that there is a great difference between the meaning of the words image and likeness. And in fact, they have built entire theologies off of the supposed difference between the words image and likeness. And clearly the words are different, and therefore they must carry a slightly different meaning. But if we consider the way that the words are used in reference to man in the rest of Scripture, we will find that they are nearly synonymous, to put it simply and briefly, to be made in God's image is to be made in His likeness. And to be made in His likeness is to be made in His image. The two concepts, though slightly different, cannot and should not be separated from one another. When man fell from innocence, 
both the image and likeness of God were in some ways retained by him, and yet both were greatly marred and distorted, leaving man in need of redemption and in renewal of renewal. Does man still possess the image of God? We would say in general, yes, but it is all bent out of shape and distorted by sin from birth. And we might also ask, does man still possess the likeness of God? And in general, we would have to say the same thing. Yes, but it is all bent out of shape and distorted by sin from birth. The image and likeness of God and man are renewed through faith in Christ, who is the image and likeness of God. Uh, Anthony Hokema, in his book, Created in God's Image, says, Although these words are used generally as synonyms, speaking to nearly the same thing, we recognize a slight difference between the two. The Hebrew word for image is derived from a root that means to carve or to cut. And when it is applied to the creation of man in Genesis 1, the word indicates that man images God. That is, is a visible, I'm adding the word visible here, but representation of God. The Hebrew word for likeness comes from a root that means to be like. One could therefore say that the word likeness in Genesis 1 indicates that image is also likeness. Man is an image that is like us, is what God is saying. The two words together tell us that man is a representation of God who is like God in certain respects. Fourthly, let us consider that man, made in the image and likeness of God, was given dominion over the earth which God had made. Verse 26 again, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now look at where the text immediately goes, and this is significant. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So do you see that there is a connection between this concept that man is made in the image of light and likeness of God and man's uh, role, man's task of exercising dominion. It's restated again in verse 28 where we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the fact that man was made in the image and likeness of God and the fact that man was given dominion over all the earth are intimately related facts. And here is how. Man was made in the image and likeness of God so that they would exercise dominion over all the earth. Put a little bit differently, man was made in the image and likeness of God in order that they might imitate and image God on earth through the process of filling and ruling and reigning over the earth that God had made and placed under their authority. Did you catch that? Why did God make man in His image and according to His likeness? Well, so that they might have the capability and the capacity to do this thing, to fill the earth, to exercise dominion as an imitator of God himself. Just as God himself had created realms, filled those realms with creatures, and then faithfully rules over those realms and the creatures that he placed there. Do you remember God's accomplishment of that in the days of creation? So too... Man made in the image and likeness of God was to faithfully fill the earth and to rule over the earth all to the glory of the God 
who made them. Notice that man was created, therefore, a responsible person. Man was created, therefore, a responsible person. Man was created with the capacity to make true and real decisions. Man was created with the capacity to rule over his domain. A man is not an animal being driven by instinct, but is higher than the animals. Certainly man is not a robot. And remember that those free willers, as I'll call them, who accuse the Calvinists and the Reformed of denying free will, they should take note of what we are saying here. Man was created by God as a rational creature capable of making free choices. He, like God, is a person, isn't he? God is person and and man, like God, is person. He, like God, is capable, therefore, of ruling. He, like God, is capable of reigning and having dominion over other things. He is the image of God, created for this purpose. Listen to our confession in chapter 9, which has as its title of free will. Paragraph 1 says this, God hath endued, or given, the will of man with that natural liberty or freedom and power of acting upon choice. How did God make man? Well, he made him with this ability to act upon choice. And that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And so where does our confession begin when talking about the issue of free will except by asserting that man, as a person, has free will. He makes real choices. He therefore is capable of exercising dominion. Now, of course, we are here talking about man prior to the fall as he came from the hand of God. But even after the fall, I would still say that man has a certain kind of free will. He still possesses that natural liberty or freedom and power of acting upon choice. He is an image bearer of God. He still has the capacity of having dominion, of ruling and reigning. The trouble is, and listen carefully to me here, the trouble is that with the heart, mind, and will having been darkened by sin, what does man naturally do now? But man naturally chooses that which is evil. Having lost true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, man does not rule and reign to the glory of God. But he rules and reigns now to the glory of who? To the glory of self. He labors still. He makes real choices in his labors. But not for the kingdom of God. But instead for the kingdom of self and the kingdom of this world. He has not God as Father and Lord. But he has Satan as Father and Lord. And if that sounds harsh, take it up with Christ who said it himself. God in the beginning created man in the image of God with the capability of functioning as a king upon the earth. He made him a person. And just as there is one God eternally existing in three persons, so man was made a person, able to make real choices, male and female. But in the moment that we emphasize man as person, created by God to freely rule, we must also remember that man is a creature. He was from the beginning and still is. And so man is not God. Man was not given authority over all things in heaven and on earth, in the way that God has authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Man's authority, therefore, has never been supreme. But man who was to, from the beginning, rule and reign upon the earth, fill and subdue, 
He was to do so as an underlord to the king of kings and lord of lords. And so man's subordination to God is made clear throughout Genesis 1, isn't it? Uh, throughout Genesis 1, we see that man is, is, he exists, he is real, but he lives under the authority of God. I think this is made clear by the simple observation that God is God and man is creature. But it is made especially clear here in verse 29 of our text this morning, where God says to the man and to the woman, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And so man was to rule as king, but we see here that he was to live in constant dependence upon the king who is far greater than him. Man was not created to be purely autonomous, acting independent from God, but he was created to be dependent upon God always. God gave him life in the beginning, and God would also sustain the life of his vassal king. He would uphold man. It was true, it was as true in the garden as it is today. It is in God that we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring, Acts 17, 28. Therefore, Adam and Eve, even in the garden, were to pray to God, saying, Give us this day our daily bread, just as we pray this prayer, living now east of Eden. Uh, Gordon Wenham notes in his commentary on Genesis that this arrangement here, where man is created by God and he is called to have dominion, and then God does then add this, he provides for man his food to eat and the nourishment uh, that he needs. He says that this stands in stark contrast to the Mesopotamian view in which man was created to provide for the gods. So here, um, the Mesopotamians and their view of God was this, man was created so that, God might work, so that man might work for God and provide bread uh, for the gods. But no, according to God's word, it is not God who stands in need of provision, but man who stands in need of provision. God created man and God also sustains man day by day. And so is man a king? Is he a person who is capable of making real choices for which he'll be held accountable? Yes, that is all true. But he is a king who stands under the authority of the king. He is a lord who stands under the authority and in need of provision from the Lord. Uh, this is the stage that is set for us here in Genesis chapter 1. It is true that God created man a responsible person, capable of ruling and reigning by free choice, but it is also true that God is supreme over man. He is sovereign. His will will be done. Man is not purely autonomous, therefore, but lives continuously under the sovereign will and plan of the Almighty God. And here is where the Arminian stumbles and eventually falls. When emphasizing the freedom of man, he goes too far and makes man absolute, supreme, and autonomous, while at the same time denying the absolute, supreme, and autonomous nature of God. Man was created in the image and likeness of God so that they might exercise true dominion upon the earth under God's authority and to His glory. God's kingdom was to be advanced on earth. The worship of God was to be promoted on earth. The service of God was to be maintained always. Were they kings? We say yes, they were. But they were created to function as kings, living for the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Adam and Eve and their offspring 
were given dominion. They were to fill the earth. That means they were to expand God's kingdom and they were to subdue it. But how were they to exercise dominion, we might ask? How were they to go about it? How were they to go about the process of subduing? They were to do so, we must say, not harshly, but tenderly, carefully, and faithfully. The nature of man's dominion, he would be Lord, he uh, he who would be Lord of all must be servant of all, applied to them as it does to us today, quoting the words of our Savior. It was true in the garden and before the fall as it is today. What did our Lord say concerning the exercise of authority? Whoever would become great among you shall be your minister, and whoever would be first among you shall be servant of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life for a ransom and, uh, ransom for many. And so Adam and Eve were to have dominion over the world, but they were never to exploit it or to abuse it as they carried out their cultural task. I have a few points of application for you, brothers and sisters, as we consider these very foundational and fundamental things. Uh, first of all, I wonder if we can meditate a bit upon how far we have fallen or come short of the glory of God. Look at how badly we have failed to accomplish this task. And look how everything is bent out of shape and distorted after the fall. When we come to the account of the fall in Genesis 3 someday, uh, we will see that it was, at its core, a failure to subdue and exercise dominion. What was it as its core? Adam was to subdue and have dominion over this place all to the glory of God. And yet the tempter comes in and he's negligent. He fails to exercise his kingly authority. He lets the intruder in, and as a result, the couple fall from perfection. And we must remember that we do not live in Eden. Instead, we see sin and rebellion manifest in every realm. We see that man is harsh on the one hand, and sometimes man is irresponsible and simply misguided on the other. A man does not submit to God, naturally but lives in constant rebellion against God. Even those who are religious tend to make God in their own image and will not submit to God's word and believe what he has said, but instead go their own way in promoting their religion. This is especially evident in our relationship with one another. Do you see that oftentimes parents will fall into the ditch on one side of the road or the other? God has given the parents dominion over the family. But oftentimes we find that parents are either harsh and domineering over their children, provoking them to anger, or sometimes parents are irresponsible and negligent altogether. We see the same pattern within the marriage relationship where the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is to submit to the husband, but oftentimes we see husbands being harsh towards their wives or being negligent in their responsibility to lead their families. Look at how far we have fallen. Look at how far we have come short of the glory of God. We even see it from time to time within the church where pastors are either harsh or negligent. We see it in the workplace where bosses have dominion, but they do not bear it well. They are either harsh or negligent. And we even see it manifest in our relationship to the earth itself where the tendency of man is to be harsh towards the earth and to exploit it for our purposes. 
It's always puzzled me why conservative Christians politically end up on the wrong side of the whole let's care for the earth debate. You know, It's a curious thing to me. I think we should use the earth and enjoy the earth and appreciate the earth and reap benefits from the earth, but we should certainly care for it, shouldn't we? I don't think we would want to argue with that fact. Indeed, Adam and Eve were to do that very thing. They were to have dominion over the earthly realm, but they were not to exploit it in any way or abuse it. But look at how far we have fallen. Look at how far we have come short of the glory of God. Here, all of us in this room, we have dominion of some kind over something. And we might ask the question, are we being faithful in this dominion, in this authority that God has given to us? Are we responsible creatures doing what God has called us to do, but doing so in a tender and patient and compassionate way? We must ask that question of ourselves. Notice that this is all renewed in Christ Jesus, though. Uh, just as the image of God is renewed in Christ Jesus as we come to Him and believe upon Him, so we should expect that a Christian should have this capability of uh, having dominion renewed with him, within himself as well. And so Christian husbands, this is our expectation for you, that you would both lead your wife and your family, but that you would do it in a Christ-like way and not harshly. The same could be said for the wife, that you will take that role that God has given to you and that you will happily fulfill it, believing upon God, and that you will do so with a Christian spirit within you. The same could be said for parents and for children. The same can be said for bosses and for employees, that we would exercise dominion in the place that God has placed us, but that we would do it in a Christ-like way. Brothers and sisters, we must pursue godly marriages. We must pursue the upbringing of godly offspring all to the glory of our great God and King. We also must promote the proper worship of God. Don't you agree with this? This is what Adam and Eve were to do in the beginning, before the fall, before sin entered into the world. They were to expand the kingdom of God on earth as vassal kings. They were to reproduce and they were to teach their children to obey God, to keep His commandments, to worship Him aright until the earth was filled. How far did they get in that task before sinning? Not very far at all. They did not bear one child in Eden, but all of their children were born, born east of Eden. Um, but what are we to do today now that we live in a fallen world? Well, we are to promote now the proper worship of God. You probably thought that it was strange that I read the Great Commission at the beginning of this sermon, paired it up with Genesis 1, 26 through 31. What do the two texts have to do with one another? Well, the cultural mandate that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden simply cannot be accomplished today by the simple expansion of culture now that human culture is fallen. Are you following me? Adam and Eve were given a cultural mandate. They were to reproduce, they were to fill the earth, they were sub to subdue it. They were to develop and build and further this culture where God is supreme and where humans live in constant subjection to God and to the glory of God. That task cannot be accomplished simply by the process of reproduction and the furtherance of human culture because human culture is fallen. But we are to promote this culture where men and women are renewed and redeemed through faith in Christ Jesus. 
We are to accomplish this, therefore, through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is our task today? It is to fill the earth and to subdue it in this sense. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You're to baptize them and you're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you and you're to do so with confidence knowing that I will be with you even to the end of the age. This is our task now, not the simple filling and having dominion over the earth, but rather the advancement of God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, through the establishment of churches on till the end of the age. Let us be faithful in these things Let us be faithful in these things. Christ himself said, My kingdom is not of this world. And we are very aware of this, that there are now two kingdoms in the world. How many kingdoms were there when Adam and Eve were in the garden? There was only one. There was the king of kings and the lord of lords. And then there was his vassal king, Adam and Eve together. They were to fill the earth and subdue it and to keep it and all of that. One kingdom. But then the fall entered into the world. And now we see that there are two There is the kingdom of light and there is the kingdom of darkness. There is the kingdom of Satan and there is the kingdom of our great God. What are we to be about then, brothers and sisters, except the furtherance of God's kingdom on earth still, through the proclamation of the gospel, through baptism, through teaching, through the church? Let us come before our God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, do help us now to see the world correctly. Help us to see you correctly. Help us to understand who we are, having been made in your image. And may we understand what it is that you have for us to accomplish even today. We know what it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. Lord, we also know that they failed. Lord, help us to know what your purposes are for us today and make us faithful to accomplish those purposes. Heavenly Father, I do pray for the men in this congregation that they would be faithful to accomplish their God-given tasks. I pray for the husbands that they would lead their wives and their, if you have blessed them with children, their children well. Lord, may they exercise good and proper and godly and Christ-like dominion over their homes. I pray for the wives in this congregation that they would take the role that you have given to them and that they would fulfill it by the power of your Holy Spirit, showing honor to their husband living in submission to Him, raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, I pray also for us in the church that we would be faithful church men and church women, that we would all work together for the furtherance of Your kingdom on earth. Lord, help us, and we do pray that You would come quickly, Lord. For certainly we long for that day when all is made new, when all is once again Your kingdom, where there is no longer sin or suffering or death, when there is no longer evil on this earth. Lord, come quickly, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people say, Amen.